Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Axe Podcast. This is Father Tom Provenzano, and today we're going to uh, talk about uh, a close call with the COVID virus, uh, but uh, more to the point, an examination of postmodernism and the Enlightenment and what they mean to us today. And before we get to that, we will begin, as we always do, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who gave one origin to all peoples, and willed to gather from them one family to yourself, fill all hearts, we pray, with the fire of your love, and kindle in them a desire for the just advancement of their neighbor, that through the good things which you richly bestow on all, each human person may be brought to perfection. Every division may be removed, and equity and justice may be established in human society. And we ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. First off, I have to apologize for not getting a new episode uh, produced and online in the last uh, week. I'm very much behind where I would like to be. Uh, things got a little bit out of focus this this week for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that when I was um, flying back from Florida, if you remember I was in Tampa last week, I uh, and the plane was landing and we were told, you can congratulations, you can put your phone back on. Uh, we, we found ourselves, uh, or I found myself with a text message informing me that one of the men in the house in Tampa had been uh, tested and tested positive for COVID-19. So it meant I had to go kind of sequester myself and then get tested and then wait for the results to get back. And yes, the results came back. And in my case, they were negative, thankfully. Uh, please pray for you know Father John, uh, who's uh, the priest down in Tampa who did test positive. He and Father Sid and, and Father, and bo- both of them are it's been over a week and, you know, they're still holding on and, you know, they're both very elderly and in, in fragile health otherwise. So just we continue to keep them and all those who are suffering from this pandemic in our prayers. Well, uh, the uh, last Saturday when I went to get tested, it was one of these drive-in centers that the local county health office had set up and they set them up, I guess, on Saturdays and Mondays and you drive through. And you get tested, and, and off you go. And uh, it, it was probably about an hour or so that I had to kind of wait before I got up to the front and you know drove into the tent. And I put on a uh, an audio book, and you know, I you know, it wasn't anything exciting. You know, you might think, oh, maybe I'd put on a like a Tom Clancy novel or something like that, or put on some type of a spy thriller, or you know, I'm a sports fan, so maybe the biography of a a ball player or something? No, 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 not at not at all. Uh, it was a a a book on postmodern philosophy. Yes, very exciting stuff. It's a book by uh, Stephen Hicks uh, called "Explaining Postmodernism," and uh, Hicks is a um, a Canadian-born philosopher and professor, and he is not a postmodernist. He is very much not a postmodernist. He is. Uh, he sees himself as a defender of the Enlightenment and of Enlightenment thinking, 
and uh, definitely postmodernism uh, kind of positions itself up and against the values of the Enlightenment. So the pur- the purpose of his book is is not only to give an explanation of what postmodernism is, what its roots are historically, and its development through the centuries, but also to to show its uh, defects. So Hicks really doesn't give a uh, a concise definition of postmodernism. It's something which sort of unfolds over a, a number of pages. And, uh, you know, if, if I were to kind of summarize a bit, what, what I would say is the, the hallmarks of postmodernist thought is a, reject, a rejection of, of objective truth. So there is, no, there is no universal truth. There is no right and wrong. Uh, you know, everything is is socially conditioned. If I was just you know, take, you know, take a pause and a and a and a parenthesis, you know, the the two words or terms that I I would say you have to always keep in mind through all this is socially conditioned and irony. <laughs> Those are two words that pop up now and again. There there is no. Uh, there is no universal truth, but there really is no personal identity either that is fixed and that is universal and that is always and everywhere true. There is no such thing really as individual liberty or individual identity. All of us are members of groups, of some type of identity group, either uh it could be a racial identity group. It it could be a socioeconomic group. It could be uh, something uh, to do with our our sexuality and sexual identity. Uh, no, no matter how we want to kind of break it down, all of us can fit into a category or a group. And basically, uh, you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. And even if you're a part of the oppressed, there is a hierarchy of, you know, some are more oppressed than others, and some are more uh, aggrieved than others. So uh, even though everybody seems to agree on who the oppressors are, uh, you know, who exactly is in what uh, turn in the pecking order of the oppressed uh, is sort of... uh, up for grabs a bit. I mean, they might not think it's up for grabs, but that's just, that's my little editorial comment. Words have no real meaning. Okay, language is malleable. This is where the irony part comes in. Um, language, again, is to be used uh, to your to your liking and to your advantage. Because, again, we're no individual identity. We're broken up into groups rather than having individual liberty. And so we use language as a weapon in a way uh, in order to promote our political agenda and for the liberation of one oppressed group against the oppressors. Okay. Individual again, individualism the, is an illusion. 
the individual is a product of their socioeconomic, racial, or gender identity or, or sexual uh, orientation, as I've kind of mentioned before already. And so the individual, like I said, is, is an illusion. Everyone is to be judged by their membership in one of these groups or another. Uh, and all of this is to be put at the service of political change or activism, okay, and excuse me, and, and activism, okay. Again, that's a very, very concise, as concise as I, I could make it. Um, again, I am open to um, uh, additions, uh, addendums, or clarifications as we go along, but that's how I read it uh, up until now. Now, Hicks, again, he's interested in defending Enlightenment thinking, and what he's saying that what the Enlightenment stood for, and uh, you know the Enlightenment, roughly speaking, is is a is a period that began roughly around fifteen hundred, and went till you know the mid seventeen hundreds, and basically what you're talking about is the primacy of reason. Far from our reason uh, not being reliable. Uh, our reason is the thing that actually gets us in touch with universal truths, the universal truths that uh, the postmodernists don't believe really exists. But what, what, the, what the Enlightenment was based on, as Hicks describes it, is this primacy of reason that can come to know the truth, an objective truth, outside of ourselves, but through the observation of nature, okay? It's, it's going to say that reason and our, our human faculties of sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, and our ability to process these things in our, in our minds uh, enable us to read the world, to analyze the world, and to comprehend the world around us. And through these things, we can come to know certain immutable and universal truths. Okay. And, you know, the, the, the watchword here would be the scientific method. You know, think of we form a hypothesis, we uh, run an experiment, we draw the conclusion, our hypothesis is either proven or it's not proven, or it's proven false, or it's maybe the experiment is inconclusive, and then we do it again. <laughs> so the idea that even if, a, even if an experiment uh, is successful and our hypothesis comes out correct, we still need to repeat the experiment in order to verify okay, that uh, it wasn't, let's say, a false positive, or, you know, it, or there wasn't maybe some kind of favoritism or, or, or some bias that, that went into it, okay? But even with that taken into account, we can still trust our senses. With the Enlightenment, we have the values also of individual liberty, uh, that each of us has the freedom uh, in order to forge our own way in the world. And in a way, we're, we're masters of our own destinies. We have the values of democracy, 
that, again, is not so much meant to protect the rights of groups, but is meant to protect the rights of individuals and capitalism and open markets, which, again, enable people to invent, to innovate, to buy and to sell and to engage in voluntary transactions of goods and services for payment. Okay. Uh, again, postmodernism would be very much because of the kind of Marxist influence, as you know, we'll come to see maybe when we touch this uh, topic again later on, uh, because of the the Marxist elements involved in, in postmodernism. You know, obviously that that's not going to uh, capitalism and, and open markets are not going to fly, because obviously the markets and even democracy itself is manipulated uh, by these uh, social forces and by these societal norms that are being uh, imposed by the, the dominant group over all these subordinated and oppressed groups. Now, all right, I know our heads are spinning. I know that at certain times... Uh, when he was going through uh, kind of the review of, uh, of of Immanuel Kant and of Hegel and of other uh, 18th and 19th century German philosophers, my head was spinning a little bit. It's been a long time since I studied philosophy. And, uh, you know, while this has been a very good refresher for me, woo, it also reminds me why I didn't continue <laughs> with the with the study of philosophy. It, it can get a little, you know, your eyes can kind of glaze over a little bit and you can get a little uh, confused. But let me just stop for a second and say that while my sympathy, my personal sympathy, is with Hicks in a way, I do not, uh, uh, I am not an adherent to uh, to postmodernism. I, I do believe that it is a dangerous uh, philosophy that has sort of infiltrated our culture, and maybe in more ways than we understand. Nonetheless, I don't believe that the Enlightenment alone has all the answers. You know, Hicks alludes to it during his sort of review of the history of the Enlightenment, that this separating of faith and reason from one another begins with the Protestant Reformation. And again, it's not my purpose here to beat up on the reformers or to get into a, you know, a sectarian battle, but th- but this is a this is a fact of of history. Okay, Martin Luther famously asked the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Meaning, what does, you know, Greek philosophy and the study of philosophy and the applying of philosophical categories that we commonly call theology have to do with Jerusalem, have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. And he felt that that our over-reliance on reason, that the Catholic tradition up to that point had, had become overly dependent on philosophy Uh, that this was actually a hindrance to faith. And so he would say, I put aside faith, I put, excuse me, I put aside reason 
in order to preserve faith. Now, again, even though it's moving against what Hicks would say, he would still probably see this as a good first start. Even though he doesn't agree with with Luther, but definitely Hicks sees this separation of faith and reason from one another as a positive uh, development. Later, the Enlightenment thinkers are going to say, no, you got it wrong. You got it backwards. I do away with faith (laughs) so that I could exalt human reason and I can exalt the works of my own hands. Now, what Hicks misses, because again, he takes a very stereotypical view of what I would call the Catholic tradition or the Catholic synthesis, and because again, he he takes a caricatured look at the Middle Ages, he really does not appreciate really the damage that's been done by separating those two things from one another. If irony is sort of the watchword for postmodernism, and I really didn't go into that as much as I would have liked to, and that's my fault, but if irony is the the watchword for postmodernism and reason and uh, trusting our reason is sort of the watch phrase for the enlightenment the unity of faith and reason is the hallmark of the catholic synthesis the idea that we hold these two things as being two wings on which we fly that on the one hand, our human reason is capable of incredible things, that our human reason is capable of remarkable achievements. But we make a mistake when we believe that all there is in reality is what we can see and touch and feel and taste. Two cheers. I would mean, let's make it two and a half cheers for the scientific method. All right. When I go to the doctor, it'd be good if my doctor was a person of faith who prayed and who, who believed in God. Okay. I think it's better. But even if that that person was someone who prayed and believed in God and let's say went to Mass every day and received communion, I would still look at their medical credentials <laughs> to see what medical school they went to. <laughs> you know, and you know, I'd be happy to pray the rosary with that person on, you know, a Saturday afternoon in the parish. Uh but at that particular moment I, I want them using the rigors of the scientific method and the the wonders of, of modern medicine in order to treat me. I don't think the two things are contrary to one another, uh, 
but at the same time, both things are, in a sense, for different purposes. The Lord gave us our natural senses and our natural abilities in order to use them for the good of the community and for ourselves as well. Okay? So I want to make that that very clear. But if all we depend on is our is our human reason, uh, and we think all that exists is what we can see, touch, and feel, and, and touch and taste and hear, uh, it leads to an arrogance. It, it leads to a great arrogance. It, it's kind of cliched uh, because it's something that uh, Michael Crichton kind of picked up on uh, in Jurassic Park. So it's become a bit of, you know, it's easy to think that this phrase was a cliche, but it, it's true. One of the characters asked the question in the face of the scientists reanimating uh, uh, these dinosaurs. You know, they could do it, but they never asked the question, should they? And we could say the same thing that, you know, in, in developing the atomic bomb. Yeah, we could do it, but should we do it? And we could say that maybe about many other things. Yes, the human mind is capable of great wonders, but it's also capable, sometimes unintentionally, of great disasters. And so we need to stop and we need to have that humility. Because in the end, we're, we are responsible to something outside of ourselves something bigger than us, something greater than us. Okay. So let's stop there for, for one second and just recap a little bit. Postmodernism rejects truth. The Enlightenment says, yes, there is truth, but only on the physical level. On the, on the level of, of the senses. The post-enlightenment thinking rejects ideas of individual liberty. An individual only has liberty in as much as he is connected with a group. The enlightenment thinking would reject that, that we are not, our rights do not depend on our membership in a group, and that if, if anything, uh, uh, that yeah, that is totally against what uh, the Enlightenment is about. The post-Enlightenment sees reason itself as a tool of the established order of the oppressor in the work of oppressing others, and specifically, it's a tool of Western civilization to oppress other cultures. Okay. And all the, this, the, these kind of group dynamics and group identity and group politics goes into and has its life in and through social activism and societal change. Uh, for the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, not that not that they're against societal change, 
But again, it's done on the level of, of individuals who voluntarily join together in order to enact that change. And these groups are not predetermined by some external uh, quality like gender or uh, sexual orientation or, or, or race. The post-enlightenment or the, the, the post-modernists would, again, reject capitalism and open markets that uh, enlightenment thinkers would champion. Now, a, a question that you may be asking is what does this all have to do with the with the price of butter? Why why is this important? And especially if you are one of our listeners here in the United States, and according to the analytics that I I see, uh, there aren't necessarily a lot of you out there yet. I, I hope that the uh, the listenership here can can grow, but there isn't necessarily a lot of you out there. But uh, you're both here in the United States and you are in, in other countries as well. And so I can't, maybe I can't speak as well to some of you from other countries, but certainly those of you here in the United States, we, we come from a culture that tends to be very practical, that doesn't really value things like uh, philosophy in particular, but kind of intellectual pursuits in general as something that has great value. We're, we're, we're problem solvers. We're practical. We, are, we want to get things done, and we want to get them done as efficiently as we possibly can. And we're not really ideological. Not really. So because we're not really ideological, and I think most people don't look at things uh, along the lines of a, of, a, of a strict party platform, let alone uh, a strict uh, ideological uh, platform or agenda, it's hard for us to really recognize it when we see it. But I, I guess I, at this point, I do want to return to something that, again, I think I neglected during the earlier part of this reflection, which was the word irony. Uh, you know, I think that on the one hand, we're pretty straightforward people, as I as I say. I think we do value honesty, and we we do value you know someone saying what they mean and and meaning what they say, and, and certainly dishonesty uh, is something which we abhor, and I think that we try to raise our children to be honest. And to be forthright, we value it in others, and and I do think most of us strive for it for ourselves. None of us is perfect, but I th- I do think it's a it's something that that we value. But the thing is, the culture has been affected by this postmodern philosophy and this postmodern movement. And as I said before, irony is the watchword. The idea that words really don't have any fixed meaning or really mean anything at all in particular. 
that we can change meaning really as it suits us in the moment and mostly as a way of exercising political power and of affecting political change. That in the use of words, in the manipulation of words, in redefining words, it's a way of keeping our opponents off balance, of keeping them always guessing (laughs) and on the defensive. But in the end, they're just words, right? In the end, they're just words. And they can be, again, they're weapons to be used in the most cynical and crass manner. And we need to be aware of this. Irony. Using a word in a way that is the opposite of how it is usually understood. It's something done in comedy. It's something at times even done in in drama. Okay, nothing wrong with it. (laughs) Nothing wrong with it. It's, It's a rhetorical tool. But the thing is, we know it's happening when it's happening in those contexts anyway. And if we don't know it's happening... Sometimes we can look a bit foolish <laughs> when we react. But the thing is, I'm not talking about irony being used in that way. Again, I'm talking about irony being used as a weapon and as a cudgel. I'm I'm talking about that in a way we have grown used to politicians not really telling the truth. We've sort of taken it for granted uh, that politicians aren't really dealing with us in a straightforward way. It's a very bizarre situation we're in. We listen to politicians speak. We watch advertising on television. We maybe even where we even watch the news at night. And somewhere deep down, we kind of know we're being played. We know that maybe things aren't what they should be, but we kind of go along with it anyway. And we kind of take for granted anyway that maybe we're not being dealt with. That maybe I'm being too harsh when it comes to the news part, but certainly in terms of advertising, it's that way. And with politicians, I believe it's that way. And I think we're used to slogans that are used as a way to kind of make us feel good and to stir our emotions. But deep down, we know that things really aren't going to change. We know that there isn't, you know, when someone talks about we're going to fundamentally change uh, America, somewhere deep down, we really don't believe that's really going to happen. The sentiment may make us feel good and may even 
drive us to do something like vote. But somewhere deep down, we really don't believe there's going to be a fundamental change, or we really understand what fundamental change means. We listen to slogans that, on their surface, no one can disagree with. Okay, No reasonable, sane person could disagree with. But we don't really look behind the slogan to see what are the people shouting the slogan really standing for. We don't ask, are they using these terms ironically? Or are they using these terms literally? Are they using these terms in a way that they are a weapon? Or are they using them in a way which really is a reflection of the truth that we all can believe in and stand behind. And my worry, if I have a worry, is that most of us, and I mean us, I don't mean, you know, when I say we, I don't mean the, I mean us. I think that, that most of us have become numb to the sea of irony that we live in. And we don't understand really where it came from, and we don't understand where it is leading us. And so, yes, I'm going to continue reading this book on postmodernism by Stephen Hicks. And yes, I'm going to keep on bothering you (laughs) with... Uh, you know, further commentary, maybe not as long as this one, uh, but I'll keep on bothering you with commentary on it. But just to to, to sort of try to kind of, uh, you know, wrap up uh, a little bit. As disciples of Jesus Christ, as Catholics, we, be- we believe that words have meaning. Now, f- a few... Weeks ago, I talked about words, that words change meaning, but I was talking about words changing meaning over time and organically, that it's not that someone chose to take a word and then just on the fly redefine it in order to meet the need of the moment, but that just as a natural progress, and it may take decades and it may take centuries, really more, more likely, for languages and for words to either kind of strengthen and entrench themselves in their meaning or kind of morph and uh, delicately expand their meaning to mean something else. Okay. But at the heart, we believe that words matter. And while certainly nothing wrong with irony as a rhetorical tool, and certainly nothing wrong with irony as a comic tool, uh, in the end, words have meaning. I am the way, the truth, and the life has meaning. This is my body, this is my blood has meaning. 
I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, has meaning and it has power. It has a meaning and a power bigger than us and outside of ourselves. It's not original to say, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ and followers of the gospel, we do not follow dogma. We do not follow ideology. We follow a person, Jesus Christ. And maybe the dogma that is formulated, not maybe, what it is and should be, is a reflection on our life in Christ and how that life in Christ should be lived out. Any political ideology that we formulate should be in accord with that gospel of Jesus Christ but is subordinate to it and is at the service of it, of living our life in Christ in a better way. And any philosophy that we have, again, yes, is a servant, a servant of the gospel. That it is the person of Jesus Christ who we follow, first and foremost. And while... We trust our senses, and we acknowledge that as human beings, we can do things that are just beyond imagining. Think of last year celebrating the, the 50th anniversary of, of the moon landings. Absolutely incredible. Done through the power and the strength of human reason and ability and know-how and strength. But yet we must remember that this year we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Again, products of technology and science, of human reason, and of the incredible ability we have in that case to destroy. And so we need humility. We need humility. We need a standard outside ourselves that will right us and correct us and help guide that precious reason that we've been given so that it could be put to the good and not to the evil. And while, yes, we, we belong to groups, I, I do believe that. I know that I have friends of mine out there that are going to argue with me on that. I, I, I think, yes, I think we do belong to groups, we belong to ethnic and, and racial groups, and those cultural ties are real. All right. At the same time, each of us individually is created in the image and likeness of God. And our dignity and our rights as human beings do not derive from our membership in a group, does not derive from our membership in a class, does not arise from the membership in a so-called community of like-minded people who happen to share certain traits. Our dignity comes from the fact that we have been created in the image and likeness of God.
and each of us as individuals is unique and beautiful and wonderfully made. And it is that that we find our meaning as daughters and sons of God. And I pray as disciples of Jesus Christ united in his mystical body through baptism and nourished at the table of his body and blood. So I will leave it there. Uh, I had other things I was going to do, but I can see, I think we're about right in terms of time time wise. I'm trying to keep these, (laughs) these presentations somewhat under control time wise. I'm not always very successful, but, uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, I'm going to try it's Friday. Now I'll try maybe tomorrow or, or tomorrow night or Sunday to get, you know, back on a regular kind of schedule of a weekend and then a midweek, um, episode. I was going to talk a little bit, I'm going to wait, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, Eddie Van Halen who passed away and then three greats in the world of baseball who passed away in in the last week and a half or so. Uh, Whitey Ford, uh, Bob Gibson, and um, Joe Morgan. But again, I'm going to wait on that till, till next time. And then, you know, whatever other kind of topical news may come up. So I'm going to keep plowing through uh, Stephen Hicks's book, and I will be praying for all of you. I ask you to pray for me. God bless all of you, and know that Christ loves you always. The The last episode uh, where I really spent a lot of time talking about uh, postmodernism and uh, the Enlightenment uh, was really a difficult uh, episode for me to, to put together. And when I re-listened to it after I had it posted— uh, I really wasn't satisfied, and I was almost going to take it down, but it's up, and I'm going to kind of leave it there and let it stand, you know, mainly because I just found myself uh, very hesitant and halting in my presentation, and part of it was that I was so kind of caught up in making sure that I said everything precisely and correctly that I'm not sure I really did. Sometimes you can work against yourself by not just letting things flow and uh, letting things uh come out the way they come out and you let the chips fall where they may but i but i did want to respect the material and uh, obviously respect all of you but there were a couple of things in all of it that i really didn't get to and i'm just going to kind of briefly hit those points here that i think that i think are very important about hicks's book and about the you know maybe about the just the topic of the enlightenment and and, and postmodernism in general you know, a, a a criticism that I had of the book that you heard about last time, that I did mention last time, was that he, he really doesn't pay any attention to uh, medieval thought. He really doesn't pay a lot of attention to ancient thought either, but he pays very little uh, attention to medieval thought. And, and what he does give to it is just kind of throwaway lines that are really rather stereotypical and, uh, yeah, in, insufficient and and show kind of an insufficient appreciation and, and understanding of uh, of the medieval period. And of, as I said, the, the what I call the, the Catholic synthesis of faith and reason. But at, at the same time, uh, Hicks has a bad habit, I think, of kind of saying, okay, we have Enlightenment thinking, and I def- he defines the Enlightenment as basically the English Enlightenment. 
And anything outside of that, which I don't like, is counter-enlightenment. And so, you know, back in the day, when I was going to school, uh, the Enlightenment was actually primarily referred to as the French Enlightenment. I think if you ask most people uh, at, at university, you know, what do we mean by when we talk about the Enlightenment? They would talk about the French Enlightenment. They'd talk about Voltaire and Rousseau and maybe some other, you know, thinkers, and, and they would talk about uh, those thinkers whose who's thought influenced the American Revolution in a direct way, not that the English uh, Enlightenment thinkers didn't either. Certainly the English ones did, especially uh, Locke. But nonetheless, uh, he kind of, in the parts of the book that I've read so far, ignores the French uh, Enlightenment. And I kind of looked ahead a little bit because it seemed a little odd to me. And and indeed, he, he takes the French thinkers and he... he he basically argues that they're not Enlightenment thinkers at all. Uh, they're, uh, they're, yeah, they're counter-Enlightenment thinkers. And uh, I am, I am uh, flabbergasted <laughs> is the best way that I, that I could put it. Uh, the, the reason why this is important to me is because, again, I look at as again, as uh, admittedly a non-professional, I am not a professional philosopher or uh, you know philosophy professor, but I have done a little reading in this area and, and study in this area, so I, I don't feel completely out of my um, out of my zone. Uh, the way I see it <laughs> is that as soon as you break faith and reason apart from one another you begin a cycle and a process that only has one inevitable conclusion, and that is basically the, the dissolution of society and culture. And uh, the, the society and culture, as we understand it, basically comes to an end, and something new has to, has, does indeed then have to come up to replace it, because you have societal... Uh, essentially political and societal breakdown, uh, much like you had again in, in 500 uh, or in the 500s at the, at the, at the fall of, of Rome. And something really new and more stable has to, has to come up in its place. And that all these movements, whether you're talking about the English Enlightenment or the French Enlightenment, all have led us to where we are now. And yes, there are responses and counter responses. You know, he's he's correct in the in the sense of that. Okay, the English Enlightenment people were saying that we can trust our senses and we can trust our you know natural abilities to observe nature and to discern truth from nature and from that. Uh, but at the same, and yes, there were reactions against it. Uh, you know, Kant and Hegel in particular were seeking to preserve faith, much like Martin Luther was, but taking a philosophical track rather than a, uh, a theological or religious one in order to argue that indeed we can't trust our, our senses. And Kant is very uh, open about the fact that he is degrading reason in order to preserve faith. 
But then we get to Friedrich Nietzsche, who basically says a pox on both your houses. We can't trust our senses. And in fact, for Nietzsche, those who are are relying on reason in order to construct their reality to claim that there there is a uh, uh, an objective truth in nature that we can discern through our uh, natural abilities and our reason are cowards. All right, he would say that they are cowards that they are denying their 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 basic gut instincts and their basic drives and the the basic state of nature in which humanity was created in and and putting this artifice of reason up uh, as a barrier from really going out there and taking risks and living in true freedom. That uh, he, needless to say, rejected faith as well. He did not believe, you know, he did not believe in God. He, he proclaimed the famously the death of God, which, again, doesn't mean that he literally was saying, you know, God was dead. But, but in terms of religion and a theistic worldview as having a real influence on society, uh, he saw as, as being over. Uh, and you know this is the late this is the 1800s this is the mid to late 1800s that he's he's writing and he's saying those things and we we often think that the that the decline of religion has been maybe you know the last uh, 10 15 20 or you know we usually we usually blame the poor old 1960s the 1960s is usually the time that always gets beat up <laughs> but actually uh, this movement goes way back and yes begins with I, uh, please forgive me, but it does begin, you can say, with the, with the Reformation, and then Christians behaving badly during the wars of religion in the, in the uh, 17th century didn't help matters at all. Uh, Catholics and Protestants not able to play nice together and to, to make peace with one another uh, didn't help the situation whatsoever. People saw that and said, well, golly, if this is what religion brings us, what do we need this for? Uh, and then kind of overlapping with all that, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and the technological revolutions and the industrial revolution, all these things, you know, kind of kind of working together. Once, you know, kind of those forces were loosened, uh, there was no turning back. And, and I think that to say that, we can go back now to the so-called age of enlightenment and the the trust in our reason and the trust in uh, you know the scientific method and in our own human ability to uh, discern the truth and to together forge uh, this this kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, utopia built on capitalism. And democracy, I, I think, is just really as false as saying that we're going to create a utopia, uh, a Marxist utopia, or any type of of perfect society. No matter what form of government that we have, uh, some are better than others, but all are going to be imperfect, and all are going to continually need maintenance and. Uh, uh, reform, for lack of a better term, and and constantly need uh, to be. We need to constantly be vigilant in the pursuit of justice and peace and and equality, while at the same time respecting 
human dignity, and yes, dare I say, each individual and and their rights. So uh, I don't think at the same time that there's any going back to, uh, you know, 1275 either. Okay, I, I don't think there's there's going back to uh, the the Catholic synthesis, at least the way it was. I don't know how we get the genie back in the bottle exactly, but whatever and however this synthesis between faith and reason is regained, uh, it's going to certainly rely on the traditions of the past and on the old synthesis, but it's going to end up being something new because we are in a new age. We are in a new time. We are in the here and now. And at least as far as the uh, Enlightenment thinking goes, I don't reject all of it. I don't reject it wholesale. I think there are elements of it that have benefited from us and that we, we have learned from as, as, as human beings living on planet Earth. So I'm not uh, anti-Enlightenment either. But I think we shouldn't fool ourselves that we're going to somehow uh, regain and rebuild exactly what came before. I think when when things bottom out, and this is where I think uh, Cardinal George was correct when he made those famous words that he would die in his bed, his successor would die in uh, uh, prison, and then his successor would die uh, a martyr in the public square. Uh, but then, but then, the church would be there to pick up the pieces of the broken society that had been swept away. But we need those tools of the previous age, that's true, but understanding that we're in a new time and applying those universal principles, those universal truths to the new situation is going to be the key. And what form that takes, I am not a prophet, nor am I a part of a company of prophets. <laughs> but I, I believe that that's going to be the, the, the key. So we'll, we'll move on to the, to the next topic now, but I just wanted to kind of give that little uh, updating, if you will, and little maybe fill in some of the blanks that I feel that I left in the presentation on postmodernism last time.